Have you ever heard the wonderful silence just before the dawn, or the quiet and calm just as a storm ends? Or perhaps you know the silence when you haven't the answer to a question you've been asked, or the hush of a country road at night, or the expectant pause of a room full of people when someone is just about to speak, or the most beautiful of all, the moment after the door closes and you're alone in the whole house. Each one is different, you know, and all very beautiful if you listen carefully. Anyone know what book that's from? Phantom Tollbooth. If you grew up in Tallahassee in middle school, you have read this book, and I'm very ashamed of your lack of literary retention. Uh, <laughs> but quotes like this, beautiful quotes like this, filled my thoughts concerning silence for years. You see, I think I was a person who put the concept of silence on almost a spiritual pedestal as the space of inherent peace and reflection, something deserving of the most poetic of prose, and for me, something that I longed for. For me, to get silent was to get close to God, end of story. But I've come to a more nuanced understanding of silence, mostly because what I've realized is this. Silence in and of itself does not equal peace. This became very clear a few years back. You see, I took a retreat over a weekend to a monastery outside of Atlanta, Georgia. If you don't know what a monastery is, this is a uh, Catholic community of monks who essentially live their whole lives in one place. And in this case, it was a silent monastery that invited people, if they wanted to, to come pray and to go through their daily life with them. So my growth group and I signed up. Uh, it was a beautiful property. We arrived, we were ready to roll. We were like, here comes the quiet peace of God. And we get there, and ultimately, the experience was profound. That's only because, for me, it was deeply unsettling, if I'm being honest. I thought I knew silence. But as, as it turns out, I never knew what real silence was. I never knew silence like this. You see, the schedule each day you were there goes about the same way. You get up at 4 a.m. or 3.45 if you want to be on time. I got up at 4 a.m. You go to the chapel where you would chant psalms along with the monks in this, you know, cathedral-esque little chapel. And they would chant psalms for about, uh, I guess it was 45 minutes by candlelight, and then after that, they would shut off all the lights for 30 minutes, and you would just sit in the dark and meditate. From that point on, there would be multiple services every few hours throughout the days where you'd do pretty much the same thing, read scripture, pray, chant psalms. You would have lunch midday, and outside of that, you were really free to do whatever you wanted. You could peruse the surrounding property. You could, you know, walk, read. You could do whatever, so long as you followed one rule. You couldn't talk. As long as you were on the campus, you were supposed to be as silent as possible. You weren't even supposed to talk at lunch. And at 8 p.m., this became a zero-noise policy until that 4 a.m. service. And y'all, for that weekend, I found myself relating to very different quotes about silence. One that came to mind as I was preparing is, silence is so freaking loud. <laughs> That's from Sarah Dezen. Have you ever sat in a cafeteria 
where no one at all is talking? I mean, every bite sounds like an earthquake, like you're setting off a hand grenade when you bite into the crouton, and you're just sure everyone around you is like, this guy needs to shut up. Have you ever walked through a hallway for an entire day and passed people that you know, and you're not allowed to say anything to them? Now I'll say, what's up? How are you? Not even allowed to say hello. Do you know how awkward that is? It's incredibly uncomfortable. It's just weird. Have you ever spent multiple days where the only conversations you really have are the ones inside your own head? Chris Turner has. I've been picking on you lately. I'm sorry about that. Just sitting alone, silent, with just your thoughts. I mean, I felt like I was taking crazy pills. It was one of the most challenging but profound experiences of my life. And I exited believing that silence was very different than I had previously thought. You see, I believe that it's crucial for growing our ability to experience peace. I do think it's crucial. But I now no longer believe that it automatically equates to peace. See, what I have come to find is, especially early on as you experience silence, is that all it really does is reveal your capacity for peace. It's the ultimate blank canvas that we can project whatever we're experiencing internally onto. Thus, if you're not in the right place, I believe it can be the ultimate time of not peace, but fear, anxiety, confusion, disorder where we truly sit with ourselves and those tapes that run in our heads constantly, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, those tapes that we usually can't hear because we drown them out with activity and noise, it's that time where those tapes become deafeningly loud. Which, if you're like me, when you actually listen to what your head thinks most of the time, that's a pretty revealing moment, is it not? And it's silence or especially for today specifically, the silence of God that I want to explore in week two of our new series, Fill in the Blank. This series, we're playing this goofy game of Mad Libs in a unique way. For those who missed last week, Mad Libs is a word game where essentially you're given a story with specific words left blank. Has anyone here played it? You played it last week and go check out the podcast if you want to catch up. But essentially, there are words left blank, and each blank has a specific category for what that word needs to be for the story to make any level of sense. And then one player asks other players to give them said specific words to fill in the blanks. Well, the twist is that the other players don't know the larger story. So the words that they shout out usually make no sense in terms of the story that ends up being read at the end of the game. Hilarity ensues, right? And what I talked about last week is that it creates this really interesting dynamic. You see, it is simultaneously both structured and open-ended. That's what makes the game so fun. There are set parameters, the larger story, what words you need to use. And then within that structure, you're free to create whatever narrative you want, good, bad, or ugly. And what I posited last week was that the biblical worldview upholds a very similar dynamic for reality that the world we live in has this unique dynamic where there are certain frameworks that are set. Life, death, suffering, relationship. 
this larger story of God about our universe with set directions and patterns. And yet, at the same time, we as human beings have been given and a massive amount of freedom to determine how to exist within that framework, to choose within this larger story how we are going to fill in the blanks. We have the freedom to pick whatever words we want to write our own story within God's larger one. And the words we choose, I believe, determines entirely how we experience everything in this world who we think we are, what we think about other people, where we think we're going, what we think we should be doing. Thus, what I said last week was that we can think of Jesus' invitation to discipleship in a really unique way that we're gonna explore in this series. That ultimately what he's inviting us to do is to play a spiritual game of Mad Libs with our lives. Where through his story, what we do is we change the words we've used to fill in the blanks of some of the most important internal stories that we hold about ourselves, others, and our God. The kind of stories that direct our lives. And in doing so, transform the stories we then write with our lives in his world. In this week's Mad Lib sentence, and the story underneath it is pretty simple. When God is silent, He is blank from me, and I need to blank. Now, if you're like me, you might have filled in those blanks in a variety of ways. You say, I grew up in a very health and wealth gospel kind of movement, and I was taught a very transactional view of God. In other words, good people with enough faith get good things, blessings, and people without enough faith don't get what they ask for or they get curses, which is really jacked up, but we'll get into that another time. So what happens with that sentence? Well, you ask for something that you really want, or worse, in my case, you pray for someone that you love who's going through something really hard, i.e. cancer, and then you don't get what you want. And that person has the worst thing that could possibly happen, happen to them. So what does that tell you? Well, you assume that you weren't good enough or you didn't have enough faith. That's why God didn't hear you. You begin filling in that sentence, when God is silent, he is angry with me and I need to have more faith. I need to try harder. I need to pray better. Or God is absent from me and I need to just give up. How we interpret the seeming silence of God, these moments when he seems to not be speaking, determines the story I think we hold about what silence means, what it tells us about God. And this is so important because y'all, I don't know about you, but how many of us have burning bush moments every other second? I think a lot of the times, if what we think about God is that he is actually verbally telling us what to do all the time, God seems pretty silent most of the time, am I right? This is important. If we think God is absent for the 99% of our lives, then how we think about him in ourselves is going to be dramatically impacted by that story. And y'all, last week, uh, when we talked about this verse of Jesus' baptism, I shared that it was the most important shift in my spirituality, this idea of belovedness. Well, this topic and this story for today is a close second. You see, we're gonna look at the story 
from the Gospel of Mark that's actually deeply intertwined with last week's story. And we looked at that story of baptism. And this is one that's entirely changed how I understand silence in my own spirituality. And I actually want to read that baptism story to get it in our minds, because I think these two are deeply linked in Mark. Recall, Mark wrote, verse 10 from chapter 1. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now remember, this scene begins Jesus's ministry. This direct, intimate, clear affirmation of his belovedness, his father's love. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Can it get any more clear? No, right? And it forms a fascinating bookend with the story that Dan read earlier, this story near the end of Jesus's life in the Gospel of Mark. You see, from this, Jesus goes about his ministry, doing the things that Jesus does, healing, preaching, teaching, forgiving. And eventually, he arrives in Jerusalem for Passover week, which is going to be the last week of his life. At the end of this week, he is going to die on a Roman cross as a traitor to the state. And in Mark 14, we find Jesus's final night on earth. He has one last meal with his friends, his disciples, and he makes known to them that his betrayal, his suffering, and his death are imminent. And in between these events, this last meal in his trial and suffering on the cross, Mark presents this incredible private scene where Jesus prepares for what is about to come, what he's facing. Beginning in verse 32, we read, they went to a place called Gethsemane, And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. So Jesus goes to this garden called Gethsemane, and he takes his closest friends aside with him to pray privately. And Mark says he became deeply distressed and troubled, or you might see it translated sorrowful and agitated. And English doesn't capture the weight of these words at all. Honestly, the best language I could give you in English is this is a panic attack. Has anyone ever had a panic attack here? That's what we're watching. Jesus is overcome by what he's about to face. He is overwhelmed with grief so much so that he can't even find his own words. You may not realize it, but he actually turns to the language of that psalm that Laurie read the beginning of, Psalm 42. And it's a powerful psalm. It's this raw poem where this person, this poet is describing how he's surrounded by enemies, how he is terrified, how he's falling apart. He says, God, I thirst for you. But then what you see over the course of the rest of the psalm is he begins to verbally kind of process God's absence in this moment. He says, my soul, why are you so downcast? He's basically trying to talk himself into trusting God. And the Psalm ends pretty abruptly with him just being like, I don't know where you are, God, but I'm gonna hope and trust in you anyway. And that's what comes to Jesus's mind as he tries to put words to what he's going through internally. And look at what he asks his closest friends. That what does he ask of them? He says, just stay awake. Be here with me. I just don't want to be alone right now. Is there a more human depiction of Jesus in the Bible? 
I mean, how relatable is this, y'all? You have these moments where you're just completely overwhelmed by fear or pain. You don't even have the right words to say, so you turn to language maybe you've always used, and you just don't want to be alone. I mean, I think we as the church, we often get the divine part of Jesus. What I love about this story is here we're seeing the human part of Jesus, God and human fully, and you see the full humanity of Jesus on display. And you can't overstate how jarring this is in the context of the Gospel of Mark. Up until this point, Jesus has been what I imagine most of us think of Jesus as being most of the time, rock solid. He gets angry, sometimes he gets sad, but he's always composed, he's always confident. And then suddenly Mark just steers us right into the story where we see him just break down. Let's continue on, verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you have kept watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say. Jesus goes off and he literally falls with his face to the ground. Has anyone been there? I know I have. You're in such emotional pain that your body just gives out. Your legs start to tremble and then you just fall over, right? Jesus collapses in fear and grief. And this was pointed out to me and I think it's profound, but notice, has Jesus suddenly realized anything that he didn't already know about what he's going to face? No. In Mark, he's actually predicted what's coming multiple times already. No, what we're watching here is we're watching Jesus' heart, his emotions, catch up to his head. And we've all been there, right? You know something horrible is coming, something hard is coming for months, but you don't actually feel it until that night of, until it actually arrives, and then suddenly it becomes real, right? Again, I don't know about y'all, this is something that is so profound to me this human picture of our Messiah. And what does Jesus do? Well, he prays. He prays this simple prayer, this mix of the prayer he taught his disciples, the Lord's Prayer. Y'all know that one? I'm hoping you do. If not, let's grab coffee. It's this mixture of that prayer and then this verbal processing like the poem, Psalm 42, through what he's going through in his current circumstance. He says, Abba, Father, this name for God like Papa, one of intimate and deep parental love. Papa, I know you love me. I know you can do anything. So could you maybe possibly take this suffering from me? I don't wanna go through this. Papa, is there another way? He doesn't know what he needs to say. He doesn't know what he needs other than not to be alone. His emotions pour out, and when he finally finds words, it's the simple prayer that he uses just to process through it. Papa, 
isn't there another way? And it's the end that really hits me. You see, he returns, and of course, the disciples fell asleep, but that's a sermon for another day. But look at this. He goes and he prays the same prayer two more times. You might say, so what? This might seem minor to you, but I want you to think about this. If God answered him, why would he pray it two more times? Do we, like at his baptism, hear God speak from the clouds and respond and tell him, Jesus, I'll take it away from you? Or, it's all good, fam. I've got you. We're gonna get through this. No. Jesus prays the same prayer three times and there's no recorded response from God at all in Mark. And it's debated why. Some scholars argue that Jesus was giving us an example of how to face our own trials, but he wasn't actually experiencing this breakdown, which I think is ridiculous. It's like robot Jesus, beep, 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 let's go to cross, right? That's a joke, you guys can laugh. Why so serious? Um, (laughs) Others argue, based on an interpretation of Luke's account of this story, that we can infer that God does speak to him. And I think that interpretation is flat out wrong for a variety of reasons that I can get to over coffee. But more than anything, I think both of these, they just miss the point of this story in Mark, what it's trying to teach us. And thus, I think it misses its power. You see, what I believe Mark is trying to get at is that in Gethsemane, for the first time in Jesus' entire life, he reached out to his father, Abba, and there was silence in response. Papa, surely there's a different way. I don't want to go through this. Crickets. It's this moment of real uncertainty, fear, confusion, disorder, and grief where Jesus experiences what we all do as human beings, the seeming silence of God, the dark night of the soul. Can you imagine a more antithetical experience than to his baptism, where God came down and spoke those affirming words, you are my beloved son, I delight in you, I'm with you. In his darkest night, Jesus experiences the exact opposite scene. And in that, I think he's left with a choice that the father knows that only he can make. Give up or stay faithful. Assume God is absent and that he's abandoned him or remember his start. Remember who he is, who God has declared him to be. Remember who his God has been throughout the entirety of his life, throughout the entirety of his story. And in that remembering trust. And Jesus chooses to trust. He closes simply but profoundly, not what I will, but what you will. I don't want to do this, but Abba, I know you love me, even now. My life isn't about me. It's about your love for other people. Not my will, but your will be done. And watch how he exits in verse 41. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Is that a very different posture than we saw in Gethsemane? He emerges resolved. 
confident, composed, ready. I mean, this is an image of peace. This is an image of acceptance, of trust. He's processed his emotions. He's remembered that God's silence doesn't mean that God doesn't love him. Notice he still calls God Abba each time. He repeats the same prayer, Papa. He hasn't abandoned that idea of his God. And he accepts his calling. It's not possible for me to avoid this, but I know absolutely that you love me, that you are with me. Okay, let's go. Your will be done. I mean, y'all, is that not a powerful story? Am I the only one? This story means so much to me. Jesus doesn't tell us how to pray through the dark, our dark nights of the soul. He showed us how because he went through one himself and came out confident on the other side. And I have a feeling that some of you know this scene well. I heard some amening and some nodding when I asked about falling on your face, when I talked about grief, when I talked about pain, when I talked about being overwhelmed by fear. This is our humanity on display. I know I relate to this scene well. There was a scene a few years back or a season where I was doing ministry, I was working through seminary and I was checking all those God boxes that my transactional view of God told me meant I was going up into the right. And for the matter of fact, I was. My life was pretty great. And then out of nowhere, I got slammed with the hardest season of my life. My best friend died suddenly. My grandparents both died within a month. My childhood cat died, no apparent reason. That was just like a thanks, God. It was just a depth of loss and of pain and of grief that I had never known in my entire life. And I remember sitting there and praying, where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? God, take this suffering from me. And y'all, it felt like I got crickets in response. There was not a dove that came down on me and said, my beloved son, it's gonna be okay. It just felt like silence. And I filled out that sentence like I was taught to. When God is silent, he is absent. He is angry. I need to despair. I need to stop trusting. I need to give up. And telling the story of reclaiming and finding healing in silence is probably too long for today. But I do want to tell you that this Gethsemane story was a massive part of it. I think it changes everything about who Jesus is. I think it shows so much about how we are supposed to find ourselves in him and what he invites us to become. I think it changes everything that Jesus went through this too. I think it shows us that God joins us in our own Gethsemane moments. I think it shows us that in those moments where it feels like too much or that God is silent, when our friends feel like they've fallen asleep on us and they are nowhere to be found, that this Jesus of Gethsemane is right there with us. That he isn't absent in our spaces of grief. He is alongside us. He is present. He is empathetic. He is awake. Jesus doesn't promise to take our suffering, obviously, but rather he promises to be with us in it, working through it, redeeming it, not because he told us he would be because he went through it himself. And I think that is profound. Tim Mackey 
One of my favorite pastors put it this way. In those moments, it's not that Jesus is with you. It's that you are with Jesus. Jesus is no stranger with the utter fear and pain of the human condition. He knows it to a degree and depth that few of us ever will. He knows your story. He's been there and he is there now. That changed the words I put in those blanks and the story I held about my own dark night of the soul. When God is silent, he is present with me. And I can sit with this, feel this, process this, pray through this, not be afraid, know that I'm still beloved, know that I can trust that he's in this too. That is a very different sentence and a very different story about who I am and who my God is. And I don't know where you need to hear this, Maybe you're living the baptism story right now. And that God's speaking to you clearly, I love you, you're my son, you're my daughter, I'm with you, and that's awesome. Y'all, that is awesome, enjoy that. But I also need you to hear that no matter what you do, it's not gonna last forever. We all go through the wilderness at some point. We all go through valleys, we will all go through our own dark nights. And maybe you're going through something like that right now. Maybe you're going through something that feels a lot closer to Gethsemane than Mark 1. Maybe you've failed in this season. Maybe you've lost someone who you prayed for a lot. Maybe you have faced the absolute worst thing you could have imagined. Maybe you're facing that right now. And God feels silent and absent. And y'all, in that, I need you to hear this story. I need you to hear that it's okay to feel that way. But at the same time, I need you to remember that Gethsemane is in your Bible too. I want you to hear that you're kneeling alongside Jesus as you go through that dark night. That we know definitively he's anything but absent where you are. This story reminds us that we can face these Gethsemane moments without burying our pain, that we can experience it, feel it, work through it without believing that it changes our belovedness or that our Abba is angry or absent. Instead, we find him in it. And we can emerge saying with confidence, not my will, but your will be done because we know who we are, who our God is, and that he is with us in this too. Amen. Amen.